It's Monday, January 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool 1, Jason Moser, and for Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Happy Monday, guys. Happy Monday. Uh, we're going to talk energy. We're going to talk about the Consumer Electronics Show. We're going to dip into the Fool mailbag, but we're going to start with banking, and frankly, a whole lot of banking. <laughs> uh, let's start with Bank of America. Bank of America announced it will spend more than $10 billion to settle mortgage claims resulting from the housing meltdown. $3.6 billion of that goes to Fannie Mae. Uh, another $6.7 billion uh, goes to buying back loans it had sold to Fannie Mae over an eight-year period from 2000 to 2008. Joe, I'll start with you. Uh, Brian Moynihan, the CEO, said this is a significant step to resolving legacy mortgage issues, streamlining the company, and reducing future expenses do you agree? All true. Uh, <laughs> Seems like everything's a significant step, though, right? Yeah. Well, I think in this case, it's a big legal gorilla that was on their back, and it's going to be easier for the company to move forward. I think the government's probably pretty happy that they're going to be able to to make right to the tune of about $10 billion that some people got ripped off. And overall, <laughs> this is a, a good deal for pretty much everyone involved. What do you think, Jason? I concur. I agree. It's a, it's a good deal for everyone involved. I, I think it's it's worth our time to reflect very quickly back to the day when Bank of America actually bought Countrywide for $4 billion. So yes. it doesn't take a genius to figure out this math isn't really working out in their favor. Uh, but with that said, definitely it takes Bank of America, eliminates, like Joe said, a big, uh, a big, really legal gorilla, you know, that was on their back for a, for a long time. You know, I was looking back and financials were surprisingly, you know, the best performers last year in the market. Even, even with all of the troubles that, that they've had, uh, financials outperformed the S&P handily. I think essentially doubled the S&P performance last year. And when you have stocks like Bank of America and Citi, uh, Citigroup that are still trading below tangible book value, I think you realize that whether or not you want to invest in something like this, you have to at least acknowledge the fact that they are cheap. And when they resolve, uh, you know, litigation like this, it makes them a little bit more attractive from the perspective that they are so cheap. We know they're not going anywhere. So then you have to ask yourself the question, does it actually pose an opportunity for investors? Yeah. If I had to sum up my year of 2011 on Market Foolery, it would have been, I need to do more dishes and banks are really cheap. And I definitely- 2011 or 2012? 2012. Sorry, I don't even know what year it is. Yeah, I completely agree. And you know, a lot of these banks are still selling the at pretty good-sized discounts to tangible book value. Now, obviously, we haven't solved everything in Europe. And, you know, in the span of three months, we've all kind of forgotten that most European countries are in precarious financial <laughs> states. Um, so that's certainly an issue. you got 26% unemployment in Spain and then a couple of countries over there. So that's nasty. But the U.S. market is improving. And generally, you want to buy financial stocks when they're selling at big discounts to tangible book value or even just book value. And and that's where they've been, and that's why they've done so well. And Jason, you mentioned countrywide. I should point out that when we look at this eight-year period and more than 30,000 loans that are being made right as a, as a result of this settlement, a lot of those are from countrywide. And, and of course, Bank of America made that acquisition uh, back in 08. Um, Joe, you talk about the attractiveness of bank stocks, specifically when it comes to Bank of America, the legal gorilla, as you say, is now off their back. How much more attractive does this make Bank of America stock? Um, a bit more, not crazy amounts more. I mean, they're still going to have to be working through a lot of bad loans over the next couple of years, but their balance sheet looks to be in pretty decent shape. I think it's pretty valid that the stock is up so much over the last year. It's still selling at about a 10% discount to tangible book. 
honestly, I'm kicking myself for not having the nerve to buy these shares a year ago. But here we are. I didn't buy them. In the here and now, I still think they are cheap. And if you're a long-term patient holder, you could do well with them. But you know, you're definitely going to have some volatility, especially if the market pulls back. I mean, I, I am with you there to a degree that it's, you look back in hindsight and feel like, golly, why didn't I just throw down a few bucks on them? But I think we've been making this this point on and on throughout the past year is that the biggest problem with many of these financials is because of so many unknowns, it is it is more like gambling as opposed to investing in you know, a business or a management team that we understand and have faith in and, and see sort of a future. There are a lot of unknowns a year ago as to what exactly you know, these these banks we're gonna we're gonna be dealing with, and so from that perspective, I think I think it it's a little bit easier to look back and say, well, I understand why I didn't invest in them, uh, and why I wouldn't invest in them going forward. You know, but if you look at something like a Wells Fargo, which I know Joe follows their uh, inside value, it, Wells Fargo is significantly different. Uh, the market obviously uh, sees sees this as a healthier financial with a tangible uh, tangible book value at about one point seven, uh, which is I think essentially double the other financials there. So there are different big banks, and so it's worth taking the time to at least differentiate them. Yeah, although I, I'll have to kick myself a little bit on that one, too. <laughs> I recommended Wells Fargo at Inside Value a year, 15 months ago. Um, and at the time, you know, it was the best of a bad lot of banks. And it's barely budged in the grand scheme of things. And you've got B of A almost doubling. So a nice reminder that, you know, uncertainty is also cheap. And with Wells Fargo, you were paying a premium for buying the best of the ugly lot. Shares of European banks also up today. The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision announced new rules that relaxed liquidity requirements and also set a new timeline. Uh, Two years ago, these rules were put in place. The timeline uh, for the banks to uh, basically uh, come under the agreement was 2015. That's been pushed out, Joe, another four years now. Any day now. 2019. Again, we see the the shares of the European banks rising inherently. Do you think this was a good decision? Yes. So, a lot of banking rules uh, with you know Basel III, which requires a lot higher capital standards, which is another way of saying that banks can't make as many loans against the equity they've got, and Dodd Frank, which happened here in the U.S., which is sweeping financial overhaul, were both very reactionary and. <laughs> in response to what happened with the financial crisis. And we wanted to see our banks being more like banks, not wacky investment vehicles, and making fewer wacky loans, being more conservative. That's all great. But when you kind of jam through financial regulations quickly, what ends up happening is you have to realize, one, there are a lot of loopholes. Two, you know, when you have legislators uh, or Congress push through rules like that, they're not well thought through. There's a lot of wiggle room. And then you've also got you know, in terms of these Basel standards, you know, you have different countries that are trying to implement these things. And so in this case, it's talking about what kind of capital you can post uh, as a requirement to meet certain liquidity standards. Well, in some countries, the original rule was, and sorry, this is totally nerding out, but the rule related to uh, government-backed securities, and it was basically you could use government securities as collateral. But, you know, maybe if you're using the U.S., that's one thing. If you're using Greek debt, that's another. So you've got a pretty wide range of assets here. And then in some countries, you know, you just don't want to keep your domestic bonds on your balance sheet in the same way. You might prefer to have like U.S. blue chip stocks. So they ended up having to, to rejigger all this. And ultimately, I think a long-winded way to get to my point, which is that I think you're going to see more backtracking from the government, uh, from governments around the world, but here in the U.S. too, where you keep seeing these deadlines 
extended because they realized the rules they came up with originally either were too draconian or now that we've gotten further away from the crisis, banks are getting a little more confident and able to push back a little bit and say, look, you know, we didn't fall off a cliff. Like, we're still here. Now, of course, you know, we say that now with hindsight, um, and they're going to get a little more of their way. And I think that three to five years from now, we're going to look back and all these regulations that were originally passed are going to be totally watered down and diluted. And maybe not a shock, Jason, that we saw the resetting of the requirements and the pushed out timeline when you consider the fact that this is the first time that there have been liquidity rules put in place governing global banks. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the the whole the history of, of the Basel Accords is, is really an interesting one. And when you look at just the Basel II um, agreement, which was the, – the work was started on that in 1998, but they didn't actually pass the language and legislation and guidelines and put them all into effect until 2004. And then the financial crisis <laughs> hit and whoops, they didn't really apply anymore. We saw how weak they really were. And so uh, you know they get, they get back to the drawing board and try to make those those uh, alterations to, to their guidelines and make – it's it's regulations versus banking kind of thing, and you know the regulators obviously are trying to do what they can to to keep another crisis from happening. The banks are are trying to stay in business and, and make a profit as well. And I mean, I think that you know Joe's right. You don't want to pass this type of legislation quickly because hastily passed legislation eventually has to be reworked again. And I think that. Uh, We'll probably see at some point. You know, maybe this will be my reckless prediction for 2014: is that they'll be starting on Basel IV. Uh, but you know, in, in the long run, I think this is the right thing to do, and it'll probably help banks keep the the cost of lending down enough to to help the economy keep chugging along. And folks can hear more about this when we launch our new global accounting uh, banking practices <laughs> podcast later this month. Uh, just to wrap up on the European banks, as I mentioned, Joe, you look at you know Barclays, Lloyd's Banking, Deutsche Bank. All up on this news, it, it seems a little bit like the Bank of America news in that it seems like a net positive yeah. for the European banks. I'm wondering, is it enough of a positive to get someone like you interested in them? Incrementally, I got to be honest. That even though you know I talk a big game about liking stocks that other people dislike, I haven't spent much time looking at European banks, mostly for the reason that you know I feel like I'm already stretching the limits of my circles of competence here by. Looking at U.S. banks, European ones are just that much further outside my comfort zone. Shares of Energy Solutions up more than 10% this morning on the news. The company is being bought by a private equity firm. Energy Solutions is in the business of nuclear waste management. And, Joe, I have to mention, when I read this story uh, in the first paragraph, uh, were phrases like debt-laden and struggles with weak demand. <laughs> yeah, so, I own it, Yeah, so, <laughs> in case you're wondering. So I, I have to ask, why would anyone, including a private equity firm, be interested sure. in a business like this? I think it's fair to say Energy Solutions has been undermanaged, which is code for poorly run for a while now. Uh, the stock was closer to high single digits not that long ago, early last year. And then it just got absolutely obliterated a few months ago and got cut by, I want to say, 55% a day. Yeah. And uh, I owned some shares around like three and change where it's getting taken out now. And some of my colleagues here, you know, when stock gets cut 55% a day, that's basically the point where you either say I'm doubling down or I'm, I'm piecing out. Some people pieced out and some of the guys around here doubled down and it's treated them very well and they've doubled their money in about two months. Mm-hmm. That's nice. Um I wish that could happen more often. In this case, though, we were expecting a sale. It was just a matter of time. And 
The reason is that you've got a poorly managed company with good assets. It's got a lot of debt. Uh, this definitely it's small enough that private equity or a strategic buyer could come in here and buy it. But the guy who was brought on as CEO also has a track record of successfully coming in and selling companies that were previously poorly run. So when this guy was brought on, it was really just kind of a matter of time before he found a willing buyer. And then, you know, in the grand scheme of things, he managed to do that pretty quickly. Um, I get where a phrase like debt-laden, you can draw a straight line from that to the management. But when I see things like there's weak demand, that makes me wonder whether investing in any aspect of nuclear energy or nuclear power is a good idea. Uh, And Jason, I'm just curious your thoughts on that, because it seems like the risk factor, not necessarily of the energy that is produced, but from an investing standpoint, it just seems like the risk factor is really high. Well, I think that's a fair observation. I think it's worth noting, I mean, a nuclear waste management firm is providing a very specialized uh, specialized niche service that, that you know, the barriers to entry to something like that are extremely high. Uh, so on the one hand, you have a, a company providing a very specialized service, but on the other hand, that company is being very poorly managed. So at some, at some point, you have to sort of recognize that there is a value that that company provides and what that value is. Uh, I think that's where you have to really dig in and understand you know, the, the actual the valuation of the company. I think this is something where valuation really, really matters. And uh, the fact that they're being bought out by private equity firm today, I think, recognize the fact that, that there is value there and that they felt like it was, uh, it was something they could fix and, uh, and improve in the long run. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit Zipcar-like. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective for you right. on how you feel about it. You know, If you bought it a year and a half ago at nine bucks a share, you're not thrilled to be getting taken yeah. out at 375 but if you're one of the people who doubled down, it was a buck seventy. You're feeling like a champ. But you also have to recognize. I mean, nuclear is something that every five, six, seven years, something happens to where nuclear becomes this big, you know, dark cloud over over the entire globe. And then you know, things change. It seems like we we get sort of back on on track here. And then nuclear becomes another, you know, a clean and safe option again. And then something happens, and it becomes a black cloud again. And so nuclear, it's a tr- it's a tough one. And, and I think that when you look back to just the uh, you know the Fukushima incident back in 2010 or 11, it was just 10. that. That was what happened that uh, I think really raised a lot of red flags in regard to nuclear with the power of, of uh, the, the price of natural gas being so cheap and, and even coal. You know, Honestly, it's, it's a legitimate energy source that's being used uh, plentifully over in uh, China and India. It, a lot of different options out there other than nuclear. Yeah, but to your point, the, the barrier to entry has got to be pretty high. That's, that's what makes me go in the other direction and think, well, maybe there is an opportunity for investors because it's not like yeah. Groupon, which has, <laughs> which has no moat whatsoever. If you want to start a business and nuclear it, waste disposal. It, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's something. You've got to really want to start that business. And yeah. you have to ask as an investor. I mean, that's one of the first questions I think you have to ask before you start looking at valuations and numbers. Ask yourself the barriers to entry in that particular market because that's a really big deal there. You can always email us. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Uh, we got an email from Elliot Yamashiro in Los Angeles, California. He writes, while I agree. This is in response to last week. Uh, while I agree that spam and Skippy probably shouldn't be combined, I was stunned by Jason Moser's remarks about spam Masubi on Thursday's show. Spam Masubi is awesome. You guys are missing out. There may be some speculation as to where spam Masubi actually originated, but there's no disputing that it's one of the most popular snacks in Hawaii. And if you ask me, the best place to have it 
is out on the links. That's that's tailor made for a golf nut like you. It is, and I'm going to go one step further here. Now, you guys know I spent a couple of years in Kazakhstan with my lovely wife. She works with the State Department. We lived there in Astana for a couple of years, and and so the local market there was was tricky. You couldn't find you know a lot of the food that we're used to eating. And a friend of ours there, uh, for whatever reason, you know, he shipped in like fifty cans of spam. And so they had all the spam sitting it's in their the apartment. It's the gift that keeps giving. And so we all had kids that were about the, about the same age. And so it turned every Sunday we would do a pancake breakfast together, get the kids together. And so this guy taught me this trick. You slice up spam and fry it in a pan. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but it tasted exactly like bacon. I was floored. I was really torn. Well, they're both made from meat byproducts. Yeah, right? yeah. But I was, I was just – I was really amazed by that. Uh, before our final story, I should mention uh, our Supernova service is opening up to new members. This is uh, the service that David Gardner, uh, co-founder of The Motley Fool, runs. Uh, we've set up a free microsite. Uh, the URL is whatsinsidesupernova.fool.com. Uh, you can go there. There's a guided video tour from David Gardner with his top stock picks in areas like 3D printing, entertainment, social networking, and others. It's all free. What's inside? Supernova.fool.com. So check it out if you're interested. The Consumer Electronics Show starts tomorrow in Las Vegas. They're expecting 150,000 attendees. Uh, but guys, here, here who, uh, here's who's not expected to be there. Uh, Microsoft and Nokia are not doing any events at the CES this year. Apple and Dell have not even uh, set up exhibitor booths there. Joe, I'll just start with you. What do you make of this? Is this is this a sign that CES is no longer as relevant as it used to be? What do you think? Yeah, it's both. I mean, CES has kind of been eclipsed by product launches from companies now. And you look at Apple, I mean, there's no need for them to be there. They do their own product launches, and it's right. practically like a rock concert. You know, people fight to get in attendance. We all follow live blogs of live blogs of the coverage. <laughs> We're that excited about following it. So for some of them, I think it makes sense. For others, I think it's just an issue of not having anything quality to show off. You know, if you look at Windows, uh, or Microsoft, it's tough to walk in there and show something that people are going to get excited about right. on a regular basis. And so, you know, and they did that for a long time. I think ultimately they made the right move and backing away. You know, it's tough to align your product cycle with CES. And you just don't want to walk in there showcasing something that isn't first rate. And I think in their case, or in Nokia's case, you need to, you know, try and own that PR a little bit more on your own end. We've talked before about companies uh, as takeout candidates, uh, and that being among other things, if not the main reason to invest in those companies, certainly among the top three. This time next week, there are sure to be a whole raft of stories about who the big winners coming out of CES were. Uh, I was just flipping through the names of some of the attendees and, frankly, didn't recognize most of them. So a lot of small sort of niche players out there. Is that the sort of thing that if you're an investor, you're, you're thinking about technology companies, does, does a company like that, does that position them to be in a better place to be acquired by a company with deep pockets like Apple or Google or that sort of thing? I think it keeps I, – I don't, I don't think it hurts. I think it definitely gets the word out, especially for a company like NVIDIA, which is a graphics chip uh, maker that is introducing its own uh, gaming device here at CES, uh, CES. And and so most people have never really heard of NVIDIA or thought of it. It's a recommendation actually over at Stock Advisor. It's done pretty well. But it is relatively cyclical because of its market. Uh, going a little bit out of its circle of competence, so to speak, and producing a gaming console – who knows whether it hits or misses, but if it hits, I think it certainly makes it a, a better-known company, and, and they leave a show like that with really a lot of positives. 
Yeah, these days the best way to get bought out by one of one of the bigger players in the smartphone or tablet space is to work your way to the top of the app store somehow. That seems to be a surefire way to get grossly overpaid for even if you have a <laughs> revenue model. We will end there. Joe Mager, Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. I think I owe Bacon an apology. I was going to say, Bacon's not really a a byproduct. I I think you've. I mean, it's a cut. It's a cut of meat. You've given. It's not like it's something. Yeah, it's spam. You can tell is like something that more or less came out of a sausage I just wanted Bacon to know that I take that back. (laughs) You've given Bacon enough love over the years that I think think Bacon knows it's it's taken care of. We're cool, Bacon.